Gonvalinkees College, Cambridge, late autumn 2019. 40 years after it welcomed women through its doors, we're meeting Kian's past and present to talk about some of the most important issues facing women today. And then there was that little corridor down there. Oh, and yeah, that, that was that. A, the only clue that they had for women was <laughs> hidden there. I think I spent about three days <laughs> trying to find around. it. <laughs> I mean, I made a big story out of it about it took me three days to find the lure and everybody used to laugh. I'm Amy Diggy and I was at Keys from 2012 to 2015 doing my undergraduate degree and I'm now doing a PhD in London on epidemiology of infectious disease. My name is Erica Hagelberg and I arrived in Keys in 1979. I was among the first women in Keys, left in 1982 and now I'm a professor of evolutionary biology at the University of Oslo in Norway. Amy Diggy and Erica Heidelberg, two former key students, both now working in STEM, but with very different backgrounds. What was happening in 1979? Lots of strikes, terrible winter, Saturday night fever in the cinema. The best thing of all, around that time, there was David Attenborough on TV and Life on Earth in a red diving suit, which was wonderful. I'm from Worthing, so I went to school there, just my local school. What happened when I was here? Not not too much that I remember. David Cameron won the election, which was very surprising, 2015. They both have really fond memories of their time at Keys. I think you can really feel the history compared to other places that I've worked, and I think it's a very romantic place and so beautiful. It's very Harry Potterish, so <laughs> I was happy. It was nice just coming in on the off chance of finding somebody and knowing that you never have to have a meal alone. The hall is lovely. It is really, really lovely. We're going in... Oh, this is Gondwell Court, and we're going into the MCR. And after a nostalgic walk around the college, they sat down to chat. Erica was keen to hear about Amy's time at college all those years after her own. I was doing physics and biology, which I'd both enjoyed doing before, and I really wanted to continue doing both. But I think I also found it quite intense covering the broadness of both subjects. So I did find the first year really quite tough um, academically, but I think it's an adjustment period as well to the learning style, teaching style, and supervisions. Having to demonstrate what you know, I wasn't actually very used to having to do that or that being a positive thing to do. How about the sex ratio? Did you find anything unusual compared to your school, for example? I mean, when I came, there were just no female members of staff. Well, biochemistry had two. But how how did you find it in terms of the, the level of women? I think it was probably getting to be more even for me. In physics and maths, there was definitely a huge majority of male students. But I also think I had that in my physics and maths uh, A-level class. I, I was one of two girls in my physics class. So I think I weirdly didn't think much about it, but retrospectively, it was, it was definitely, yeah, there was a minority of women. So what was that like for you when you first started here? Well, I knew it was... The first year that Keys had women, on the one hand, I didn't really think about it that much. You know, I just came here to, to do a PhD. On the other, it was very odd. For example, one of the first formal dinners, I got sat all the way at the end 
of a very long row with an empty seat next to me. And I was looking and there were such few women. Mm. And I thought, you know, why didn't they sit me in the middle? I'm sure quite a few people would want to talk to me. So it was a strange mixture. In my house, we were in a graduate house in Harvey Road. And there were eight other students. Obviously, they were all male. They were extremely nice to me. In the lab, there were women PhD students and male PhD students. But I really felt a bit as if the balance of power was in the hands of the of the guys. I didn't probably think about it that much at the time. But looking back, I've realized it more, that um, the men were listened to more. I remember a time when we had a lab meeting and I was always full of crazy ideas. And I said something and there was absolutely no reaction. And a male postdoc said the same thing after five minutes and everybody nodded and said, what a wonderful idea. So annoying. Yeah, but it's not the first time and I'm sure you'll recognize that yourself. I still find it quite scary asking questions after someone's done a talk or something. And I always like... If I think of a question, I've got it in my head, and I'm like, oh, is that really worth people's time? And then somebody else will, will ask the same question, and I'm like, oh, I should have asked it. But slightly different, because um, I don't actually get to the point of saying it. Even. <laughs> but yeah, I think I know what you mean. I think when I arrived, I was a bit blown away, because I'd been expecting that it wouldn't be the stereotype, like as beautiful, it wouldn't be... Cambridge and Keys really lived up to its how I'd kind of imagined it um arriving and the first night eating in hall having a veggie lasagna knowing that Stephen Hawking was <laughs> at the next table it was just like a very surreal experience I remembered something that I'd forgotten the first day made dinner I got sat next to Joseph Needham for dessert. And there was Joseph Needham and Dorothy Needham and a couple of my my fellow graduate students. And Joseph Needham and I talked for one and a half hours. And it was marvellous. We were completely enthralled with each other. And I would have forgotten this if it wasn't for having found the letter that I wrote home with a seating plan. And of course, I admire him hugely. And um, it's just, as you said, of, of Stephen Hawking, it's my, my big moment in Keys was having talked to Joseph Needham for one and a half hours at that dinner. After you arrived in Cambridge and you went home for the first time, what was your family's reaction? Oh, so... I I remember getting home and my sister saying that my accent had changed and it was just like, it was like a knife to the heart. I was like, oh no, (laughs) it's awful. Um, So there was that and I think a lot of sleeping. I just slept for so long because we just basically didn't sleep the first term uh, because we were all kind of socialising and getting the work done. So yeah, it was a lot of sleeping. And I remember trying to tell my family about things but I felt like I couldn't really explain my experience very well so I remember being frustrated that I couldn't like communicate all these things that happened to me um but it was it was a pretty good experience going home and just having a having a kind of well sleep after that (laughs) 
Um, yeah. What were your favourite things about college life when you were here? Well, the beginning was very surprising when I arrived at the college house in Harvey Road. These people were knocking on my door. They brought whiskey and coffee. And then they took me under their wing and they were saying, well, there's first hall and the second hall and you have to wear your gown. And then there's guest dinners and the MCR. People have special privileges because they can eat in the gallery and that's got a number of benefits. A, you can spit on the, on the, on the, mm. on the graduates. B, there's a better kind of person. And there's all this list of things about how wonderful it was to be a graduate at Keys. So they were, they were funny guys. And then I also started going to concerts. And it was just fantastic, sometimes two or three concerts a week. And I participated in a Spanish-language play. And I worked hard in the lab. Sometimes I'd go in at 7 in the morning and stay until 9 or 10 at night. It was just very intense. I also had days that I used to sleep 13 hours because I was so exhausted. Mm. When I graduated, I wore men's clothes to high table. I think that that went down in, in Key's history. <laughs> Professor McPherson, I just remembered, took me for my dinner just before graduation. And he was scandalized that I was wearing a dinner jacket and trousers. And the next morning, they made me go out and buy a skirt. They said, we will not graduate you or we will not take you to Senate House to get your degree unless you wear a, a skirt. So I dashed out and I think I found the black skirt in Marks and Spencer's and put it on. But I wore my little white tie. I wore the white tie too when I graduated because I just thought it was it looked smarter. <laughs> I can't believe that. I contacted my prospective supervisor because I was interested in membranes and he had written a review about cell membranes. I think an anthology. I can't remember the publication. But what he was actually working on was spores, bacterial spores, these very kind of resistant structures. So almost uh, by accident, I started working on spores. Mm. It was, I suppose, quite biophysical. And in the end, because I was so uh, stubborn, it ended up being very much uh, enzyme kinetics, which I liked a lot. So it became very mathematical. So I was always finding my own way, my own solutions to the problems. But I think I went into it by accident and realized that in a way you can choose any PhD and you can study the whole world through that topic. Do you find that with yours as well? Yes, I think even though it is very specific, you end up thinking about things that can be applied to many different areas of study or um the aim of my PhD is to try and better understand how Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus, which is a, a virus which circulates in dromedary camels, but then from the camels it can be transmitted to humans and cause severe respiratory disease. The aim is to better understand how it's 
spreading in the dromedary camel populations to then simulate different vaccination strategies to see what would be the best way or whether vaccination would be impactful enough to um, avert human disease. So what I do with the mathematical modelling of the spread of infectious disease, it's also led me to think a lot about the social science around the spread of disease, but also the spread of other things like ideas. These aren't things that I directly work on, but yeah, I definitely like how the, how it kind of leads you to think about other things. Because people always say your PhD is like so specific and not really applicable to anything anyone else is thinking about. So I, I haven't really found that, so I've liked that about him. I read in your paper that one of the things that you have to face is resistance against the vaccination of the camelids. Yeah. So, I mean, there's quite a lot of psychology and this to do with society and everything. So I was quite interested that you don't just look at the RNA and at the biological processes mm-hmm. and the mathematical model, but there's also how is this going to be implemented in society in different countries. I found it really interesting because obviously we we don't have camels in the UK. They're not a big part of many people's lives, although they seem to be a big part of mine now. Um, it's been really interesting for me trying to find out why would people not want to vaccinate their camel if they if there is this risk of uh, the spread of the this zoonotic disease. So it's been very interesting learning about the camel industry and how the role of camels in even urban society is growing in um, the Arabian Peninsula and there's these million dollar camel beauty pageants and camel racing and and even intensive camel farming where so um, I recently tried camel ice cream from Asda which I didn't know was a thing. Um, <laughs> I think because the disease doesn't cause any actual negative effects in the animals and people have been working with camels for years and years it doesn't really logistically make sense that they would need to vaccinate camel which is kind of introducing a risk it's something an unknown thing so I I do understand why people don't see the value in it but the risk isn't being perceived as it is it's being perceived much less than it is I think how did you go from what you studied in your PhD to what you then studied after Is there something linking them or was it more like um, the opportunity presented itself? At the end of my PhD, I I was really tired. I mean, it had been a very intense time. In my third year, I was just running around so many different departments, getting people to just help me with different techniques. And I finished it. I really wanted to do something else for a little while. So I left Cambridge and I went straight up to to Dudley, near Birmingham, Dudley College of Technology. And I did a one-year course in glass techniques and technology. And I said, that's it, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a, an artist and work with my hands and be this pure person that just kind of creates beautiful objects. And the end of papers. And I did that with the person who's now my husband, and we enjoyed it a lot. The life was completely different. In that year, I was also writing up my PhD, mm-hmm. and it was niggling me. The work was really niggling me. And I showed one chapter to somebody at University College London, and he was really interested. 
he was an enzyme geneticist. And he said, what are you doing with whole spores? We're not achieving that kind of beautiful kinetics with pure enzymes. So he invited me to work in his lab. But we couldn't get a grant. So I drifted a bit. And I took a job just for money in London in a lab. And I did a part-time master's degree in history and philosophy of science. So from the glass and the spores and the bacteria, I started to learn about Aristotle and Galileo and ideas. And I got very excited in history. And I had my first child in the summer holidays, which was very well planned. So I didn't miss any of any of my masters. And then because I was a student at University College, I was entitled to a nursery place. And that permitted me to work part-time, to earn enough money to pay for the nursery. So I was just going around like a crazy woman, studying, working, and raising my, my baby. But it worked. It gave me a tremendous amount of energy. When I was researching for my dissertation for the Masters, I came across a paper on the extraction of DNA from an extinct animal. The paper had been published in 1984. There was another paper in 1985, and it was the cover of Nature, an ancient Egyptian mummy, and they called it Molecular Egyptology. And I just said, beep, this is a not to be said in public, this is what I want to do. So I started reading as much as possible about archaeology, how you can use biochemical and molecular techniques to understand the past. How do you do it? Maybe this is something that I have to make up. By chance, I saw an advertisement on the notice board in University College London for a job in Oxford, but the deadline had expired. So I took the ad off the notice board and I just kept it in my notebook. And I was quite upset, you know. Somebody is offering money to try to extract DNA from old bones. And I'd love to do that. But they probably already have a person. And then I saw the job re-advertised and I applied for it and I got it because nobody else was going to be crazy enough. (laughs) to try to do something so mad. What made you think, oh, yes, this is possible, when other people had said that it wasn't possible to extract DNA from bone? I don't know what it is about my stubbornness. (laughs) If anybody says something cannot be done, immediately I feel that I have to have a go. Mm. I don't know whether it's a bad characteristic or a good characteristic. It's got me into a lot of trouble. (laughs) But when I went for interview, and there were two people who were holding the grant, somebody from the more archaeological side, a chemist, and somebody from a more genetic side, and one of them said there's only a 50% chance of success. I still thought it's, it's worth a chance. There were also, oh, I don't know whether I should say this, But there were certain questions about me having a child and would I be able to 
to give the research the time it deserved? And what guarantee could I give him that I won't have another? Yeah. And of course, it, I said, you shouldn't even be interviewing women if you're going to raise these questions. But I think uh, people accepted this kind of thing much more than Uh, so how did it happen that you got the position? They offered me the job, so we moved to Cambridge, the three of us, and the pay was really low. So it just about covered the nursery for my son. Mm. So it was a bit of a struggle financially, but I started in the lab with absolutely no idea. How do you get old bones? How do you get the DNA out? How do you study the DNA? It was really almost like alchemy. So it took probably a bit more than one year. And this is running around, inventing things, harassing archaeologists and asking them for, for bone material, getting to know people in different labs. How do you even cut a bone? I asked an orthopedic surgeon to show me, and he brought his hacksaw. And I thought, this is a specialist tool. I said, where did you get this from? And he said, from my, from my toolbox. <laughs> so it's just, how do you handle bones? And then I used the technique, which had been invented quite recently, the polymerase chain reaction, which you probably know quite well. But at the time, people were doing it with water baths and they had to put more enzyme into the reaction tubes at the end of each step. It's quite complex, but they didn't have the right enzymes, they didn't have the right machines. So I had a Sony Walkman, and I would just plug myself onto my workbench and go from water bath to water bath and do the PCR by hand. So it took me about a year and lots of trial and error, and then... I got a band. And that's what every molecular biologist says, I got a band. And the band was exactly what I would expect if the experiment had worked. Wow. And it was an amazing day. But then the bigger question, how do you know it's true? Mm. How do you know you haven't recovered some of your own DNA or DNA from dust in the laboratory? Because the issue about how to distinguish what's present-day DNA, which is everywhere, and ancient DNA from a 5,000-year-old bone. So that really took me another year. And then I thought, I know it works, but nobody's going to believe me or know me unless I write a paper. So I sat down and I wrote a paper and put my supervisor's names on, on it, and we sent it to Nature, and I got accepted. So the first paper from that work was in Nature. Wow. And it's precisely, well, 30 years ago, in November 1989. And that morning, when I walked into the Institute in Oxford, everybody was smiling at me. Those were the days before the Internet. And people would get nature in the morning on Friday mornings in the library. And everybody would look, leaf through it to see if there was, you know, one of us who'd got something in nature. And that morning it was me. 
And I just felt my life has changed. People know me now. And I think you're not really a scientist till you've shown it to the world or test, you know, open yourself up to criticism. That's amazing. That's like what you think of as science when you're, you know, you're, you're young and you're like, oh, that's, you know, scientists make these amazing discoveries that then go on to change those things. Like, you've actually done that. Very cool. What what was the first thing you did when you realised that you'd got um, the band? Probably, well, I wrote it up in my notebook. I'm very historically minded. And because the day the experiment worked was the 7th of November 1988. And I knew that was the anniversary of the October Revolution. I wrote in my notebook anniversary of the glorious October Revolution. I knew something had changed, but in a way it was back to the drawing board, back to proving it. Also, there was the issue that my grant was only for two years, and I had the feeling that my supervisors didn't really want to extend it, Mm -hmm. because I think once again, and I thought for a long time it was a personal failing, my stubbornness and my way of doing things doesn't always suit authority. Maybe it's a gender thing, but I really thought that that was the end of my scientific career. And it wasn't till I approached somebody else in the Institute and he said that he and Prof Weatherall, the head of the Institute, would be very keen to have me apply for a fellowship from their lab that I decided to stay. And they were really supportive. And without that kind of support and backing and people saying, well, you don't have money, so we can get get you a a bridging grant so that you can pay the rent and, and the nursery, without that support, you cannot be a scientist. I actually wanted to ask you about your trips to Easter Island as part of the application of um, the technique you found for extracting DNA from bone. What was it like? Well, in a way, I did the work first and then went to Easter Island much, much later. In 1994, I published a paper in Nature describing the extraction of DNA from prehistoric skeletal remains, from people from Easter Island, and was to test this idea, are the Polynesians? A few people thought they came from South America. One of the greatest supporters for the South American origins view is the Norwegian explorer Thor Heyerdahl. And Thor Heyerdahl was my childhood hero. I read the Contiki expedition when I was a kid, and I just revered Heyerdahl. So I did this work and I did the work in the lab from skeletal remains that people had sent me from a museum in Chile and I showed that the genetic markers were Polynesian, not South American. And after the paper came out, it was just all hell broke loose in Norway because everybody was saying Thor Heyerdahl is wrong. Thor Heyerdahl was furious and he said, you know, this Cambridge woman doesn't know what she's talking about. 
And I thought, I cannot let this happen. I revere the man. So I wrote to him and I congratulated him on his 80th birthday. And I explained my results. And I said, these, these are data. They do not support your hypothesis, but they do not contradict it either. I mean, at the moment we have this evidence, but it's one genetic marker. And it's possible we might find other genetic markers that are more informative. And he wrote back a wonderful letter, you know, several pages letter. And we became friends for many years. But I never went to Easter Island because I didn't want to be disappointed. And it wasn't until 2014 that I met a scientist in a meeting in Leicester talking about genome information. And he talked about work on South American and Easter Island DNAs and living people. And I spoke to him, well, you know, the Pacific is also important. You, you can't just look at South America. So he incorporated me into his research group. And we went to Easter Island. And I fell in love with the place. Easter Islanders speak their own language, which is Rapa Nui. But they also speak Spanish because it's the part of the Republic of Chile. And my first language is Spanish. So I'm there, I'm at home, I'm meeting everybody. And then I went back twice more of my own bat because um, I just think it's really interesting and not just the DNA and the bones and the origins but everything to do with the subsistence of humans in such a remote island and the history and there's just so many things that are coming out of it. I think, you know, you look at something and it's as I said before with my PhD project it just opens up a whole world of people and landscape and economics and everything, and I just love that. Amy, it's, it's so nice to talk to you because, because it's great to talk to women scientists, but I was really interested about the issue of uh, Wikipedia pages on women scientists. And I know there's somebody at Imperial who, um, who's very active in that field. Can you tell me something about it? That's Dr. Jess Wade. So she's been adding entries to Wikipedia of um, female scientists and their contributions to science um, in her own time to try and equalise the, the representation so that then people who just want to find out about their work, but also people who maybe wouldn't have aspired to be a scientist would then see more people who are like them who are already scientists and that that kind of trying to fix that representation problem. Um, but it's, it's really cool what she's doing. The thing is that she got me involved and then I did one for somebody else who really deserved it and that's the best thing, mm. to actually do it for other people because uh, there's lots of good women around. And learning how to do it and how to be a Wikipedia user is very good. Because it's not just the pages on women, but women contributing pages that's so important. Thank you to Amy Diggy and Erica Heidelberg. In the next episode of For the Love of Learning, we'll meet two Keans who work hard trying to address the issue of diversity in the college, through their research, and through inspiring the next generation of Keans. Last year, the college held a garden party to celebrate 40 years of women at Keys, and some of the women who attended shared their memories of their time at the college with us. 
Amanda was one of my first eccentrics. Well, I don't know. I think you, you might have been my first eccentric, actually. Bridget was somebody who didn't need any sleep. So when I arrived at Keys, I tried to follow what she was doing. And Bridget only had four hours a night. So I used to ask her to wake me up. After a few weeks of doing that, I was absolutely knackered. She also smoked a pipe. So whilst I was here, sorry, I learned how to smoke a pipe. And we also used to drink gin on the roof together, gin and lime together. Yes, so that's was it. I couldn't understand how a young woman from the colonies didn't know about gin and lime.